Well, if you have your Bibles, we're going to be over in Genesis chapter 28, verse 10. Genesis 28, verse 10. And, uh, you know, right before uh, we started going down the road to Easter, uh, we spent some time uh, in Genesis, and we are back in Genesis this morning. And when we left off in Genesis, we were looking at the story of Abraham and how him and Sarah had finally had this child that had been promised to him, and God says, okay, hey, I'm going to need you to take him and sacrifice him. And uh, can't imagine the uh, thoughts and emotions that Abraham was dealing with. Um, this past Wednesday, uh, I got to uh, go and hang out with the retiree group, uh, which is a blast. And uh, we went and watched the movie, uh, His Only Son, which recounts the story of Abraham and that call to sacrifice his son. Uh, spoiler warning, uh, he doesn't end up having to sacrifice his son. Uh, God provides a ram. Uh, he wanted to see if now that Abraham had what he had been wanting, if he would remain faithful, if he would remain obedient, and that is exactly what he does. And so this morning, we're going to fast forward in our story a little bit, and we are going to uh, go to Jacob. And uh, this morning, we're going to look at this kind of this calling uh, of Jacob, but in order to understand where we're at in verse 10, we have to understand the context and the story of where we're at with Jacob. And this story really revolves around a set of brothers. There's Jacob and there's Esau. And to say that Jacob and Esau's relationship is a little bit difficult, it's, the relationship here is complicated to say the least. It is a very complicated relationship. Matter of fact, the story tells us that they were uh, both in the womb of Rebekah and uh, they were jostling with each other for position in the womb. I can't imagine what that must have felt like for Rebekah. It tells us in Genesis 25:23, the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. And what this is referring to is Jacob's descendants would be the Israelites, and they would be in conflict with Esau's descendants, the Edomites. And this conflict would rage for a very, very long time uh, before eventually the Edomites were brought down. But there was this conflict between the two. And we see in this biblical story that Esau came out first and was hairy and red, and so they called him Esau, which means hairy, rightfully so. That's a good name if you were born hairy and red. Let's call him Esau, which means hairy. The other boy comes out holding Esau's heel, so they called him Jacob, which means he grasped the heel. Now, the, there's a footnote in many of our Bibles that says that this was a Hebrew idiom for the phrase, he deceives. And so Jacob's name means he grasps his heel, also he deceives. A great name. Uh, but you go on and we see that Esau was a hunter, 
He was an outdoorsman. And because of this, he was uh, favored by Isaac because Isaac had a taste for wild game. But then there's Jacob, who was an introvert. He liked to do indoor tasks, and he was favored by Rebecca. And there's an imbalance here. Favoritism is very visible. And this is where things really begin to get crazy in our story. Esau, he comes home from hunting one day and wants some stew that Jacob had made because he was famished to the point of death. He was so hungry, he was to the point of death, and he needed food. And so he asked, or he says, give me a bowl of that stew. And Jacob says, okay, you can have a bowl of stew, but first you have to swear an oath that I will have your birthright. All right, if you want the stew, you'll give me your birthright. And so Esau sells his birthright for a bowl of stew. And you might be wondering, why is this a big deal? What is a birthright? Well, birthrights were the special privileges and advantages that belonged to the firstborn son. The firstborn son had allotted to him a double portion of the paternal inheritance. This comes to us out of Deuteronomy 21, 15 through 17. It tells us about this. It says, if a man has two wives and he loves one but not the other and both bear him sons, but the firstborn is the son of the wife he does not love, when he wills his property to his sons, he must not give the rights of the firstborn to the son of the wife he loves in preference to his actual firstborn, the son of the wife he does not love. He must acknowledge the son of his unloved wife as the firstborn by giving him a double share of all he has. That son is the first sign of his father's strength. The right of the firstborn belongs to him. And so it's this idea, these, you know, this double portion of the paternal inheritance, these special privileges, those are gone now from Esau because he has given those away for a bowl of stew. And if you think that is crazy, it gets even crazier. Isaac is on his deathbed, and he gives Esau some instructions. In Genesis 27, 2 through 4, he says, Isaac said, I am now an old man and don't know the day of my death. Now then, get your equipment, your quiver and bow, and go out to the open country to hunt some wild game for me. Prepare me the kind of tasty food I like and bring it to me to eat so that I may give you my blessing before I die. He's going to give Esau this blessing that Esau is owed because he is the firstborn. But, you know, a blessing would usually be in the Old Testament. A father would give to his sons, would include words of encouragement, details regarding each son's inheritance, and prophetic words concerning the future. And this blessing was promised to Esau, but Rebekah hears everything that's being said, and so she gets... Uh, with Jacob, and they formulate a plan. She tells him to go get two young goats, and she will prepare them just how Isaac likes them to be prepared, and Jacob will take them to Isaac, and he will get the blessing. Now, here's the thing. Jacob is not hairy like his brother. I think Jacob realizes this. Uh, I'm not as hairy, so how are we going to deal with this? And so, again, they formulate a plan. He's going to uh, wear Esau's clothes, and they will cover his skin with goat skin, so he will be hairy. Sounds like a foolproof plan. And so, Jacob does all of these things and goes to Isaac, and after some questions and some food, Isaac catches the scent of Esau, and so he gives Jacob his blessing. The plan works. 
he gets this blessing. And Esau comes back and he brings food to him and Isaac says, wait a minute, I've already given the blessing away to somebody else. And we see that this is heartbreaking, heartbreaking, and it makes Esau angry. He is now going to be below, beneath his brother. This conflict between the descendants of Jacob and the descendants of Esau. And this makes him mad, and this makes him now want to get revenge on his brother. And so Esau has decided that he will wait for the days of mourning and then will kill his brother. Rebecca hears about this, and so she sends Jacob to Laban in Haran, her brother, to stay until uh, he is no longer angry. And the plan with this is not just for him to flee, but Rebecca decides to tell Isaac, send him to Laban so that he can find a wife from Laban's daughters. And Isaac tells him to go and do just that. Well, Esau hears this and decides to marry a Canaanite woman because he has heard how marrying a Canaanite woman would displease his father, and so I'm not going to do what he's doing. I'm going to go marry a Canaanite woman just for spite. And uh, he goes and marries a daughter of Ishmael. And so this is where our story is at. He is going, we're going to find Jacob fleeing to go to Laban, to hide away until his brother is no longer angry and to find a wife. And that's where it leads us to Genesis chapter 28, verse 10. And so we're going to start in the first two verses here, starting in verse 10. It says, Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran. When he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and lay down to sleep. As we mentioned, he's on the move, he's on the run, so he's heading out for Laban uh, in Haran. And we see that he stops for the night. And, and what's interesting about this is that it appears that he goes with nothing besides the clothes on his back. He goes with nothing and with nobody. This is kind of interesting because Isaac was a wealthy man, so you'd think that maybe he would have time to bring some stuff with him or bring a servant with him, but it doesn't tell us that. It appears that he goes by himself with nothing. Maybe it was just a result of poor planning, or maybe he was just in a hurry to get moving. Either way, we see that he ends up here uh, with nothing but a stone to lay his head on. And he lays his head down for the night on a stone. Now, I don't know about you, but this does not seem appealing. When I lay my head down in the evening on a pillow, I would prefer that my pillow be soft as a cloud. Um, that's how I prefer my pillows, and maybe uh, you prefer your pillow to be super firm. I think of it, this is the closest thing I can think of, is laying your head down on this for the evening. And maybe you're here and saying, I like my pillow to be that firm. I don't know. But I can't imagine laying my head down on a brick to go to bed at night. And yet we see him lay his head down on the stone. And little did he realize that when he fell asleep, he would have a dream that would become so significant in his life. We see in verses 12 through 15 what happens. It says he had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven. And the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. There above it stood the Lord, and he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham, 
and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. And with his head on a stone, Jacob falls asleep, and he has quite a dream. The fact that he could fall asleep anyway with his head on a stone is quite the achievement. But he has this dream, and in this dream, we see in what the NIV tells us is a staircase. The word here is a word that's often commonly translated as ladder. It's probably the more familiar thing we've heard in popular culture about this story. Jacob's ladder is what it's commonly referred to as. We see in this dream this ladder or staircase sitting on the top of the earth, reaching the heavens with angels ascending and descending. And this is symbolic of a connection between heaven and earth, this connection between God and man, heaven and earth. This is why many say that Jesus is really the perfect Jacob's ladder. He's that connection between God and us, heaven and earth. And what an interesting connection this is when you look at this compared to, say, the Tower of Babel. Got questions, puts it this way. In this instance, it was God who provided the means necessary to link himself to man as opposed to the men of Babel in Genesis 11 who tried to reach heaven by their own actions aside from the help of God. And so we see these angels ascending, descending, this connection between heaven, earth, God, and man. And above this staircase ladder is whatever one you prefer to call it, is God. And he begins to speak to Jacob. And he tells him that I am the same God who appeared to Abraham, your grandfather. I am the same God that appeared to your father, Isaac. And he makes the same promises that he has given to both Abraham and Isaac. He gave this promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, verse 2 and 3. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. In Genesis 15, 5, he gave him this promise again. He took him outside and said, look up at the sky and count the stars. If indeed you can, count them. And then he said to him, so, your, so shall your offspring be. To Isaac, he makes that promise in Genesis 26, 2 through 5. The Lord appeared to Isaac and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Live in the land where I tell you to live. Stay in this land for a while, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and your descendants, I will give all these lands and will confirm the oath I swore to your father Abraham. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and will give them all these lands. And through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because Abraham obeyed me and did everything I required of him, keeping my commands, my decrees, and my instructions. I'm going to give you the same promise that I gave to Abraham and Isaac before you. I will give you uh, this land. I will give you offspring as numerous. It will be like the dust of the earth to the west, to the east, to the north, and the south. And he says, I will be with you. I am with you, and I will watch over you wherever you will go, and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. How important this promise must have been to Jacob. 
he's left his home in Canaan and he's now in this land that was not his own and God had promised to be with him wherever he goes and he will watch over him. This is something that the author of Hebrews reminds us of. Thank goodness that God is with us in all of our circumstances. Hebrews 13, 5 through 6. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? And such a promise, I'm going to be with you everywhere you go, no matter where you're at, I will be with you, I will watch over you. And that promise is still true to us today. How amazing it is knowing that we have the Holy Spirit to lead and guide and direct us. And we know that we have a Heavenly Father who watches over us, who's with us in each and every circumstance, each and every trial, even when we think that he feels so distant, we, are distant, we know he is there with us. And he tells him he will bring him back to the spot where he's having this dream and this will be land promised to his people. He had a plan for Jacob's future and he wasn't going to leave his side. This is the plan I have for you, Jacob, and I'm going to be with you every step of the way. How amazing that promise must have been to Jacob. In verse 16 through 22, it tells us, when Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, surely the Lord is in this place and I was not aware of it. He was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Early the next morning, Jacob took the stone he had placed under his head and set it up as a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. He called that place Bethel, though the city used to be called Luz. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will watch over me on this journey I am taken and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear so that I return safely to my father's household, then the Lord will be my God. And this stone that I have set up as a pillar will be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give you a tenth. And so he wakes up from this dream, crazy dream. And he thinks, surely the Lord was in this place and I didn't realize it. And you know, we often think of God, right, as being everywhere. No matter where we are, God is everywhere in each and every place. But it's been pointed out in commentaries that in ancient times, people believed that certain spots were set aside by God as places to connect with him. This place was a place to connect with God. This place was a place that you could connect with God. And we see that Jacob says, surely this place... Surely the Lord was in this place and I was not aware of it. And we see that he's afraid. We see that he's afraid. God appeared to him, a sinful person, and spoke to him. Of course you would be afraid, knowing who you are, where you come from, what your past, what your history is, to know that God would come before you. There is that feeling of being afraid. He's hearing from God. And he's also in awe. He's in awe of what he has seen. He's in awe of this dream and awe of this vision that he has been given. And we see that he uses two phrases to describe what has gone on. He said, surely this was the house of God. This was the house of God. This phrase, the house of God, it would mean a place where he had been brought into the presence of God. In this place, he has been brought into the presence of God. And he says that this place is the gate of heaven, a gate of heaven, a place where he could return to meet God again. 
And so this is a place where he's been brought into the presence of God, and this is a place where he could return to meet God again. And so what does he do next? In an act of worship, he takes the stone, or his pillow, if you will, and he sets it up as a pillar. It could have looked something like this. There's a picture up there. And he anoints it with oil. Oil was used as a symbol of an offering made to a divine being, God, whose presence or abode is connected with the stone that had been set up. And this was an act of dedicating this place as a place of God because of the encounter that he had had with God through this dream. And we see Jacob do this in other chapters of Genesis as well. And in this location that was Luz, Jacob's going to rename it as Bethel. Bethel means simply house of God. And this was about 12 miles north of Jerusalem, and this was a place that we would see Jacob return to again. Genesis 35, 1 through 7, Then God said to Jacob, Go up to Bethel and settle there, and build an altar there to God, who appeared to you when you were fleeing from your brother Esau. And so Jacob said, to his household and to all who were with him. Get rid of the foreign gods you have with you and purify yourselves and change your clothes. Then come, let us go to Bethel where I will build an altar to God who answered me in the day of my distress and who has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave Jacob all the foreign gods they had and the rings in their ears and Jacob buried them under the oak of Shechem, at Shechem. Then they set out and the terror of God fell on the towns all around them so that no one pursued them. And Jacob and all the people with him came to Luz, that is Bethel, in the land of Canaan. And there he built an altar, and he called the place El Bethel, because it was there that God revealed himself to him when he was fleeing from his brother. And so he sets up this, this pillar, and he anoints it with oil, and now we see him make this vow before God. If God will do what he says, if God will be with him and watch over him, if he will give him food and clothes and protection to help him get back home in peace and with safety, then, he, then God will be his God. We see examples of vows like this in Scripture made in situations of distress. An example of this is 1 Samuel 1.11 with Hannah. And it says, and she made a vow saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life. No razor will ever be used on his head. And you see, the Old Testament does not discourage making vows, but if you were going to make these vows, scripture shows you better own up to the vows that you've made. Deuteronomy 23, 21 through 23 tells us, if you make a vow to the Lord your God, do not be slow to pay it, for the Lord your God will certainly demand it of you, and you will be guilty of sin. But if you refrain from making a vow, you will not be guilty. Whatever your lips utter, you must be sure to do, because you made your vow freely to the Lord your God with your own mouth. Ecclesiastes 5, 4 through 6, when you make, it, or when you make a vow to God, do not delay to fulfill it. He has no pleasure in fools. Fulfill your vow. It is better not to make a vow than to make one and not fulfill it. Do not let your mouth lead you into sin, and do not protest to the temple messenger, my vow was a mistake. Why should God be angry at what you say and destroy the work of your hands? And so he makes a vow. 
And some want to see this vow as Jacob simply testing God or trying to bargain with God. If you do these things, then I will believe you. If you come through on these things, I will follow you. I don't see it that way. I don't see it that way. I, I think Jacob is saying, I know you can do these things. I know you can do these things. He's heard from Isaac. He's heard about what God has done in the life of Abraham and the life of Isaac. I think he's saying, I know you can do these things. I know you will do these things. I will trust you. As you read the story of Jacob, you see just how important role he will play in the story of Scripture. And we see Jacob complete this vow with a vow to tie the tenth of what God gives him. And this is similar to what we see from Abraham given to Melchizedek, this first offering, Genesis 14, 20, and praise be to God most high who delivered your enemies into your hand and Abraham give, gave him a tenth of everything. And this is something that we continue to see throughout the history of Israel. And so Jacob has fleed from home. He falls asleep, head on a stone, has this crazy vision. And in this vision, God says some pretty amazing things to him. I am with you. Wherever you go, I am with you. I will watch over you. I will bring you back to this land. He is going to make this. He makes the same promise. I will give you numerous descendants. I will give you this land. What God is saying is, I'm going to honor that blessing that was given to you. I'm going to honor that, and I'm going to choose you, and I'm going to use you to do amazing things. And if I can sum up this story, I would sum it up like this. God uses imperfect people to do his work. God uses imperfect people to do his work. Read through all of the scriptures and you will see so plainly that God uses flawed, broken, sinful people like you and me to do his work. Maybe you're thinking, what are some examples? Abraham was just too old, wasn't he? Too old to do the work of God. Too old to have a son. Too old. Just too old. Jacob, the uh, person we're looking at this morning, Jacob was a liar. He was a deceiver. Did you know that Moses had a stuttering problem? That's why Aaron spoke for him. Gideon, he was found in a wine press afraid. Rahab, she was a prostitute. Peter, he denied Christ three times after saying, I'll never do that to you, Lord. Oh, Paul, he was overzealous about his faith. He had people stoned. So many stories, so many stories of how God uses imperfect people to do his work. Over and over and over again, we see examples of this. And Jacob is no different. He's a liar, he's a deceiver, and yet he becomes Israel. He becomes this father of the nation. We see his faith is strong as we read the rest of Scripture. And yes, Jacob makes mistakes, and yet God uses imperfect Jacob just like he uses imperfect me in you to do his work. And how is this possible? Grace. God's grace, that's what I think it is. It's God's grace. It was God's grace that God gave to Jacob that even though he was a deceiver, a liar, God would still use him. It was his grace that he had given him. The same grace poured out on us. 
God can use us imperfect people because of his grace. 2 Corinthians 12, 9, Paul writes, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. Paul recognized that it was grace of God that was sufficient in his weakness to make him strong. 1 Peter 4.10 tells us each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. And I love reading stories like this because it reminds me that God loves us enough to use us to point people to him, even though we are so very flawed. And I think that's great because too often I think we let, our, we let our flaws, we let our brokenness keep us from doing what God calls us to do. God calls us to go and make disciples, all of us. It doesn't matter if you're a preacher or a teacher. Whatever you do, whatever your gift is, you are told to use it to go and make disciples, to point people to Jesus. And we are all broken and we are all flawed and it should give you courage, it should give you hope, it should give you man, encouragement to know that just like us, God used people all through his word who were broken and flawed to share the gospel. He used Jacob who was just as imperfect as us, chose to honor that blessing and use him. And I love this because it reminds us that it is his grace poured out on us that not only allows us to share the word, but it also saves us. It is that same grace that allows us to share the word that saves us. Ephesians 2.8 says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. That same grace that enables us to share the word is the same grace that saves our lives. And so are we telling people about that grace? I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. And as they do, Maybe you're here this morning and you've been thinking to yourself, man, I am just so flawed, I am just so broken, I have no hope for me. Here's the thing, God uses imperfect people all the time, broken people just like you and me to do his work. And guess what? He gives us grace Grace that saves. And so maybe you're here this morning and you think, I'm so broken, I'm so flawed, there's nothing I could do. God has given us grace. He has saved us through his blood on the cross. We have been saved. We have been given grace. Maybe this morning you're in need of that grace. And if that's the case this morning, you can make that decision to give your life to him, to receive that grace. On your connect cards in the chairs around you, you can write it down. I'd love to talk with you. And... Maybe you want to just come up here and talk. I'd love to talk with you now. Elders would love to talk with you. Or maybe you're here this morning and you've just been looking at all the, the flaws, all the mistakes, all the things in your life, and you've been thinking, man, God, there's just no way you could use me. I am just not good enough to be used to be a minister in your, in your kingdom. And when I say minister in your kingdom, that's what we all are, aren't we? No matter where we go, we're called to point people to Jesus, each and every one of us. And maybe you're here this morning and you're thinking, man, I just can't do that. Maybe what you need to do this morning is you need to give that to God. God, whatever I need to do, God, whatever I need to give to you, use me. Use me to point people to you. Use me to be a, a servant in your kingdom. Use me, Father, to do your work. 
right where you're sitting. You can pray those things. I could pray with you. I'd love to pray with you. Man, I love the story of Jacob after the, the deception, after everything that took place with Esau. God chose to honor that blessing and God used him and he watched over him and he fulfilled his promise. And guess what? The same man who had all these flaws, all these mistakes, guess what happens? He again becomes the father of a nation. His faith is so strong. He becomes an important person in scripture. It's just a simple reminder that God could use those who are broken and weak and flawed to do amazing things. If you're here this morning and you have a decision to make and you, you need to make it, I pray that you would do so as we stand and we sing this morning.